Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. Guys, guys, the robots are coming. The robots are coming. Conversations about collaboration, episode 24, Kevin Roos of the New York Times pops by for a chat about his new book, Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. I read it. It is awesome. We talk about Best Buy, Amazon, Google's scary accurate AI tool, remote work, and ways to retain our humanity when machines rule the world. Let's go. Kevin, where does this pod find you? I am in my home office in the Bay Area. It's a lovely day outside, and uh, this is one of the last things on my schedule today. So I'm going to go outside and uh, and, and uh, you know spend some time reading outdoors after this. Yeah, it sounds like you've really taken to that. I read the book and I really enjoyed it. And I knew about these digital detoxes, but I guess you actually went through one with what was her name Catherine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my phone coach, uh, Catherine Price. Um, this was something I did uh, before the pandemic. And now I, I think I need to do it again post-pandemic too, because my screen time has been creeping back up. Yeah, as what I'm your sure record? lots of people has. Yeah, what was your record? Six and a half hours on a phone one day? That's a lot, dude. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, I, when I wrote that, it was it was pre-pandemic and you know, six and a half hours was the amount of time I was spending on my phone. And that sounded crazy. And since the book came out, in the pandemic, I've been hearing from people who say like, that's it. Like I'm spending, you know, 12 hours a day on my phone because I'm doing Zooms and I'm doing, you know, I'm doing, uh, you know, Skype calls and I'm, I'm working, you know, I think people's screen time has gone up considerably. So six and a half hours is, is uh, no longer an outlier in terms of how much time we're spending on our phones. It's one of my theories behind the growth of Clubhouse right? We want to connect with people, but we don't want to put our face on. Am I completely crazy on that? Or what do you think? Yeah, I think Clubhouse is is a really interesting sort of example of what's been happening during the pandemic. We started off doing these like Zoom calls. And I remember I had like Zoom happy hours and Zoom game nights and Zoom birthday parties. And and um, that, has, that stuff sort of trailed off after a while because I think people just got sick of it. And it's much easier just to be, you know, on your phone, uh, you know, moving around your house, you know, cleaning stuff, doing the dishes, um, listening to clubhouse than it is to be, you know, all made up and have your hair done and a real shirt on and stuff in front of zoom. Haven't had to worry about hair issues for about 20 years, but that's a different discussion. I lean into my baldness, baby. All right. Looks great on you. I, I can pull it off. Um, so I, the, the mo- to me, the most interesting role was don't be an endpoint. Um, talk a little bit about that one. Yeah, so the book is sort of at a high level. It's about how to succeed and be happy in the age of AI and automation. It's sort of a survival guide for the near future um, and the present because AI and automation are are sort of have already taken over a lot of parts of our lives. Uh, and this rule... Um, came from an event that I saw a couple of years ago. It was a Google announcement. And uh, I don't know if you saw this, but it was when they debuted their their duplex uh, voice assistant. I, I so did. Had, yeah, so they had created this AI 
that could basically make appointments over the phone for you. It could call a hair salon or a restaurant and say, you know, Phil wants a table um, at 3 p.m. on Saturday. Do you have anything available? Um, and the person on the other end of the line, they, they demoed this and they demoed it with the AI calling a hair salon. And the, the receptionist at the hair salon had no idea she was talking to an AI. Um, and they had a whole conversation back and forth. It was very impressive technology. At the end, you know, everyone standing ovation, huge applause. And, uh, and there was this guy who was a former Google um, worker who tweeted something like, humans are becoming expensive API endpoints, which in sort of software developer language is, you know, endpoints are the bridges between applications. They're what, you know, allows your Tinder profile to import your Instagram photos. Um, use an API um, and an endpoint. And so I started thinking about that and I couldn't get this tweet out of my head. I couldn't get this phrase out of my head, this like human endpoint terminology. And I started seeing examples of it everywhere. So I would see, you know, there would be a, a security guard and this was pre-COVID when we still went to offices, but there would be like a security guard in my office building who would like check people's IDs and then type their names into the system and see if they were an approved guest in the system and then push the button that lets them through the turnstile. Or, you know, I'd see someone at Starbucks picking up a Postmates order, looking at directions on their phone and just doing what their phone told them to do. Uh, I would see, you know, Amazon drivers following their, you know, GPS coordinates and their predetermined routes and just, you know, dropping things on people's porches and, and getting back in their vans. And I would just, all these sort of felt like examples of humans basically being extensions of machines rather than sort of employing machines to do our work. There were a lot of people who were essentially being managed by machines. And that struck me as being very dangerous. And when I started talking to AI experts and, and people who you know work in this field, they said, yeah, those jobs are, there's sort of two categories of, of work between humans and machines. There's like machine assisted work where like, you know, we're using technology right now to record this podcast. And like, maybe you'll use some automated transcription service to like make the transcript and, you know, people will find it through algorithmic recommendations on, on maybe their, their podcast platform. Um, those are all machine assisted, but there's this category of sort of endpoint jobs that are essentially where the, the machine is the boss and, and the worker is just the sort of cog in the machine. And those are going to be the first jobs to be automated. They always are. And, um, and, even if they're not automated, those jobs are never going to improve because the goal of those jobs is to serve as an, a, sort of an, an appendage of the machine and workers are, have basically zero control. They're, they're just expendable sort of meat on the end of the software process. So um, for people in those kind of jobs, my advice is to, to get out if you can, um, and if not, to try to move yourself closer to being a decision maker, being part of the process of sort of coordinating the work rather than being the sort of fleshy attachment to the to the machine. I remember reading that, and then I think that was around the same time that you were writing about so-so tech, 
I'd never heard that term before, but for the millions of people, eat your heart up, Joe Rogan, who are listening, uh, what is so-so tech? Yeah, so-so tech is a, is a phrase that was coined by um, these economists, Dorona Samaglu and Pasquale Restrepo at uh, MIT and, and Boston University. And they've been writing about automation and labor markets for a long time. And they've been trying to sort of understand this, this problem that has been stumping economists for decades, um, which is that if we are in this golden age of technology, if we're automating these things, if, if AI is taking huge leaps forward, we should be seeing massive gains in productivity. If companies that previously had a thousand employees are now able to do the same amount of work with a hundred employees because of technology, we should be seeing the productivity data for those employees like go through the roof. But instead, productivity growth has actually been slowing for the past several decades. So economists refer to this as the productivity paradox. Like we have all this technology, but you don't see it in the economic data. And Asamoglu and Restrepo came up with this idea that uh, of so-so technology to explain that basically the reason we're not seeing the productivity gains is that we're using the wrong kind of technology. We're basically building automated systems that are just barely as good as a human worker without being much better. So things like call centers, for example, you know, I don't know about you, but every time I call, you know, uh, airline or, you know, Airbnb or something, or, or there's some, you know, automated phone system that I get, and I need to talk to a human, I'm, I'm pressing zero. Like, I don't want to wade through the menu. I don't want to talk to the robot. I want to talk to a human because the humans are just better at solving your problems. So these so-so technologies are, are, they're just good enough to replace a human, but they don't create the massive productivity gains that previous leaps forward in technology have. And so as a result, we get the downsides of automation, people losing their jobs, without the upsides, which is, you know, creating tons of new jobs and new industries. It's funny that you mentioned the 1-800 numbers. I know their entire website's devoted to how you could circumvent them. And one of the other hacks that I've heard is to say nothing because mm. it doesn't know what to do. So it routes you to a person. That's interesting. Yeah. There's a website called literally called get human where okay. it tells you like which sequence of buttons to press to get to a human more quickly. And I think that speaks to, how mediocre <laughs> this technology is. If like their entire website's devoted to circumventing it, um, it can't be that great. Yeah. Even at the other day at the grocery store, uh, after I'd read your book, I was checking out and I didn't feel like waiting online because they've got at the local fries, 10 aisles, but only two of them are occupied and they've got 12 or 14 of the self-checkout stations, but then they have an attendant dedicated to each one of the bays for lack of a better term, because whether I'm trying to buy a bottle of wine and even though I'm nowhere near 21, they want to make sure that that's there or it doesn't recognize the code for the kind of apples that I bought. It made another example. So, so tech. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those machines are replacing workers, but you still kind of need workers around to like check the IDs and key in the overrides. And so all it does is just allows the owner of the store to staff fewer workers on a shift, but
but it doesn't make you buy twice as many groceries. It doesn't make groceries cheaper. It doesn't make the store much more productive. It just allows them to like substitute machines for humans. Mm -hmm. One of the things I really enjoyed about the book was that you mixed solid, incredible academic research with interesting stories. Uh, In my experience, not every author does that. And Best Buy, I thought, was a really interesting example. And fun fact, I actually just went to Best Buy the other day. And talk to me a little bit about how that company, over the course of, what, two to three years, really turned itself around. Yeah, well, one of the questions I was interested in answering with the book is, I was looking for examples of unlikely survivors, companies, individuals, jobs that should have been replaced by technology, should have been disrupted, but weren't for some reason. And so the question is why? And so I have examples in the book, lots of examples of humans who've done this, but I also found examples of organizations that have done this. And and the best one I know of was Best Buy. Best Buy was supposed to die um, at least a decade ago. People were predicting that it was going to be trampled by Amazon and, you know, we lost, we've lost a lot of other big box retailers in that time, you know, Circuit City and what were the other ones? CompuServe and uh, even I Fry's, I think, is, 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 has declared bankruptcy or something like that. Okay. I know um, Bed Bath Beyond is kind of on the fence. I think they're shuttering 200 stores or something. Yeah. So big box retail has had a horrible decade. Um, but Best Buy has been growing. And so my question was like, how did they do that? And I I called up the CEO. I talked to them for a long time. I tried to figure out their secrets. And it turns out that what they did is to make themselves a more human company. So used to be most of their revenue and profits was from just like selling the newest DVDs or the newest video games. Like they don't have that business anymore because everyone has Netflix and they download their games instead of going to the store to buy them. So they had to come up with something new. And what they decided to do was this in-home advisor program where they will literally send a a technician to your house to sort of be your personal IT department to tell you, you know, this speaker set will sound better in this kind of room than this other one. You know, oh, you need a a new washing machine. Well, this is the one that's going to fit your needs. Um, And then they'll sell you this stuff that, that they recommend. Um, but it's a very different model than Amazon, for example, which is all about taking humans out of the equation and doing everything with robots and making things as cheap and efficient as possible. Best Buy went in the other direction because they knew that they couldn't compete on things like logistics and robots. So they decided to compete on humanity and they, and it worked for them. That program is extremely popular and it's been growing. So I think that's a good sort of template for how organizations can survive AI and automation is, is by, you know, by not trying to sort of compete on efficiency, but trying to make yourself and your products and your services more human. Um, selling experiences instead of goods is a, is a way to go. I love that phrase competing on humanity. Was that ever a consideration for the title? No, I mean, I like, I like the title, but yeah, there are definitely like, you know, chapters that, that um, could have been the title of the whole book. So yeah, I think that's a good sort of, 
if I had one piece of advice for businesses um, in the next decade, it would be to compete on humanity because that's how the economy is moving. Um, I think there will be businesses like Amazon that succeed because they automate everything and everything's very cheap and efficient. But if you're not Amazon, you're going to have to find some way to differentiate yourself. And that, you know, the easiest way to do that is by being better at relating to people, being better at, you know, making people feel good and feel supported and feel secure and, and um, doing what Best Buy is doing, turning yourself into more of a sort of technology therapist than a, than a technology <laughs> retailer. Yeah. And I think I read this in your book or I read it in something online, but hasn't that reduced the extent to which people are showrooming in Best Buy? Yeah. So people used to just go into Best Buy and take a picture of something or look it up on their phone on Amazon and order it there. And they were losing tons of revenue that way. So they did a couple other, they did like price matching stuff. Um, so they weren't entirely focused on on sort of the, the in-home advisor thing. But I mean, that's the thing that they have that Amazon doesn't have. Uh, at Amazon, if you, you know, want to hire someone to come to your house and install your flat screen TV on your wall, like it's really not that easy. Um, but Best Buy has a whole army of people who can come out and do that for you. Yeah. I think when you talk about operationally, operational efficiency, uh, I think it was a while ago, I read an interview with Jeff Bezos about er how every human interaction was a process failure hmm. because everything ought to be automated. Yeah, I mean, that just strikes me as like a very backwards approach to this. I mean, certainly in the business that he's in, the goal should be, you know, his goal is clearly to do as much through automation as possible. Um, but there's a reason that his workers are unionizing. Yeah. Um, because who wants to live like that? Who wants to Who wants to work for someone who thinks that you are um, just a, a point of friction to be gotten rid of rather yeah. than a human being to be nurtured and, and, you know, to be sort of allowed to contribute and like who, who wants to live like that? I'm with you. Um, I just, I thought that there were a lot of really interesting examples in the book of companies or individuals who've not only survived, but thrived. I, I know there still are a few travel agents around and I guarantee you as you write the book that they're not trying to compete with kayak or Expedia. And then tell me about the black bookstore. Cause that to me, that was one of my favorite examples. Yeah, this is um, a store in my, in my city in Oakland um, called Marcus books. It's the oldest black owned bookstore in America. And it's an amazing place. I, uh, I get a lot of my books there and it's, it's just, um, you know, it's, it's been able to survive even though independent bookstores by and large have disappeared um, and it's not because they have the biggest inventory or the most optimized supply chain or the lowest prices. It's because it genuinely feels good to be in there. It's a safe place for black patrons. You know, the, I talked to people who, you know, are, are customers there and they said, you know, I remember coming here as a kid and it was the only store I could walk into and know that I wasn't going to be, you know, followed by a security guard or accused of shoplifting or something. It's, it's got really good vibes as the co-owner put it to me. And as a result of that, it's sort of more than a bookstore. It's a community institution. It's, it's a place where, um, you know, people can come together and, 
you know, instill a love of books and literature in their children. And it's, it's a real um, staple of the black community in Oakland. And so as a result, it's, it's been thriving. Um, even as so many other independent bookstores go under, um, because I think they realized that they couldn't compete on price, but they didn't need to because they were offering something that Amazon couldn't. Yeah, I'm with you. And I found that tension between machines and algorithms and people to be one of the recurring threads throughout the book. Um, you referenced, I think it was a Times piece, Why Doctors Hate Their Computers. And I've noticed that um, doctors are always running late unless you get there right at the beginning of the day and how they have very little time to actually get to, to talk to you and to know you. And uh, I'd be silly to think that algorithms didn't have at least something to do with that, right? Yeah, I mean, this, this you know, phenomenon of being managed by machines is not unique to, you know, warehouse workers and, and security guards. Um, you know, doctors feel this too. They have new systems, electronic medical records. They have, you know, systems like, you know, Epic and other sort of systems that basically guide them through their interactions with patients. Um, and so as a result, they're spending more time with, I mean, you know, I've been to doctors where, maybe I spend six minutes with them and for five of the minutes, they're looking down at an iPad and it's like, is this really the, the human interaction I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to get out of an, a doctor's visit or, you know, am I basically being seen by an algorithm right now? Mm. Um, so I think that's, that's really bothering a lot of doctors and there are some that have started to sort of push back on, on some of this technology. Yeah. I can't blame them. I know in one of the chapters, you mentioned that in an earlier version, you were basically going to rant against remote work. A year into a pandemic, um, it's tough to do that because if you think about it, there's never a good time for a pandemic. But to your point from before, in an era of Zoom and smartphones and all this technology, which can absolutely be overwhelming, you know, many companies actually did reasonably well. I mean, some companies, as you know, covering business, Microsoft, Amazon, Netflix killed it right? Because we were using more of their services. But um, talk to me about your relationship with remote work. Something tells me that it's complicated. It is. I mean, I am a remote worker. I've been a remote worker for the last year, but I've also been a remote worker before the pandemic for, you know, periods of several years at a time. And when I was, you know, working for New York-based publications from California and I really want to like remote work and like this trend, but there are things about it that worry me. And one of them is, you know, the research is pretty clear that remote work is good for bosses. It's good, you know, workers that on, on average, you know, absent a pandemic, a pandemic and when the kids are back in school and stuff, they're more productive working from home. Companies get to save on overhead, rent, snacks, office events, desks, equipment. Um, they Insurance, get to potentially employee salaries if they wind up relocating. I mean, it, it's a pretty long list. Exactly. So it's, it's great for bosses. They get more for their money. Um, and it's good for some workers because they get more flexible, you know, lifestyle and stuff like that. But the research is, uh, it's pretty clear too, that it's, it's really hard to do very human work remotely. So work that involves creativity, collaboration, um, you know, coming up with new products, new ideas, new designs, um, the stuff that sort of benefits from in-person interaction and kind of spontaneous 
you know, collisions between different people who are, you know, working on related problems. Like it's really hard to do that stuff over a distance. It's not possible, just requires much more effort. And so I think that a lot of the companies that are going remote um, are going to start sort of wishing that they had more people in the office because they'll find that people are productive, but they're not, they're not sort of bringing their humanity to work in the same way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and for workers, I think it's worrisome, you know, I think remote workers are kind of halfway automated already. They're, you know, they're green dots in a Slack channel. They are, you know, subject lines in an email inbox. Like if you're not seeing someone face to face, essentially you you're sort of becoming like a kind of mechanical Turk, you know, worker, you're sort of becoming sort of undifferentiated worker and the parts of yourself that are the most unique aren't able to be expressed as easily. Hmm. I'll get you out of here on this. What book are you currently reading? I just finished um, a book by my colleague, Cade Metz, um, which just came out called Genius Makers. Um, It's a sort of biography slash, you know, nonfiction reported book about the pioneers of machine learning. And it's so good. It's really good. And anyone who's interested in AI or machine learning or sort of what's happening, how we got to the point we're at now, um, should read this book. It's, it's quite good. Kevin, thanks so much for taking the time. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at wait for it. Patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, and how can you not, please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, and how can you not, please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.